Hello and welcome to Romaniacs. We are less than a week from further shops reopening as the UK eases its lockdown bit by bit. And over the past few months, Britain's been warned against things like barbecues and going swimming, but it didn't stop 17th century slave trader Edward Colston, who took a dip in the River Avon over the weekend. <laughs> so inconsiderate. I'm Andrew Harrison. Joining me this week are, according to Nigel Farage, three members of the Taliban. <laughs> Naomi Smith. Naomi Smith is Chief Executive of Best of Britain. Hello, Naomi. How are you? Good. How are you? All right. Not bad. What did you make of uh, the statue of Colston being uh, toppled by Black Lives Matter into the Bristol docks at the weekend? Everybody seemed remarkably chilled about it, didn't they? Well, they did. uh, And a YouGov poll said that 33% of people disapprove of the statue being removed. Um, Personally, I wholly support it. And I did cheer when I saw it happening online. Uh, And look, basically, my view is that if some people are more upset by how people are protesting rather than why they're protesting, then they're part of the fucking problem. Um, And it shouldn't have needed to have been uh, forcibly removed because it should have been done democratically by the local authority a very, very long time ago. Which had been stymied by certain interest groups, hadn't it? It's like the the thing that people are not recognising is that you know, there, there were attempts to remove it through the, what what you know, quotes, the proper channels, and the proper channels were blocked by people who perhaps didn't represent the local community. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the wording over what would replace certain things apparently, you know, caused some kind of bureaucratic boring nightmare, but it was all wrong and it should have come down years ago. What do you make of the argument that, you know, while we might sort of applaud it going in the dark and coming down, that it's actually not the way to do it because what happens when suddenly the far right decide they don't like a statue, that you kind of set a bad precedent? Well, I mean, obviously that's just a totally false argument. Um, liberalism doesn't mean being tolerant of intolerance. Hmm. Uh, and there might well be statues that offend the far right. I'm sure they, you know, find the Melissa Fawcett and Nelson Mandela statues offend them. But those figures have never curtailed the rights of an entire race of people. So any, you know, bullshit far right anger towards those statues would be wholly without any uh, justification and would be nothing but but British thuggery. But that said, I think... You know, there is an argument that we do need to be careful because these far right thugs, uh, or you know, they're overtly racist morons and they're looking for any chance to jump on perceived injustice in order to legitimise their own violence. But if we want to talk about violence, then I'm afraid we've just got to talk about the fact that the violence was started by white people, rich male white people, hundreds of years ago when they captured black people, enslaved them, beat them, raped them and violently repressed them. Alex Andreo is an actor, cook and commentator. I'm glad to announce he's shortly returning to the UK. Hello, Alex. How are you? I'm okay. Thank you. Are you going to be looking forward to quarantining for 14 days when you get off the air bridge? I'm not only looking forward to it. I demand it. (laughs) (laughs) Look, it's ridiculous, of course. I'm coming from from a country that's had fewer deaths through the entire pandemic than the UK has still every day, um, right. and from an island that has zero cases and have been sheltering for three months. But the rules are the rules. I may not agree right. with them, but I will be quarantining myself for 14 days. Um, we're going to be talking about your huge COVID story for Byline Times later in the podcast. Do you think that certain parts of our friendly media are going to blame any second wave of coronavirus on the protesters over the weekend? Because you know the immediate thing you saw was, well, they're not social distancing, aren't they? Isn't this a disgrace? <laughs> uh, look, every side will choose its culprits, no doubt. The truth is that 
you know, breaking social distancing, whatever setting, risks spreading the virus. Um, now, I might be able to find justification, uh, different justification for protesting, you know, the the violence perpetrated on, on black people as opposed to going to the beach. But the the fact of the matter is that both are risky activities. One thing that has become... Um, very clear is that scientific disciplines involved in, you know, mapping a pandemic may be unreliable in terms of predicting exactly what will happen next month, but they're really good at showing exactly what happened last month. So I'm sure we will know quite conclusively if there is a second wave, where it originated and how. Mm. And the policing of the demos, we've uh, seen, you know, the contrast between the UK and the uh, very harsh crackdown in the United States. You spotted, uh, I think David Allen Green had it, something called the Police Firearms Officers Association, tweeting a picture of a set of images of injured police officers uh, with the words all in the day's work. And it turned out they were from a selection of far right demos throughout the past four or five years. I mean, are we going to get we get to the point where we've got the kind of US approach of you know, pick a side? And anything you say to justify your side is justified. I think we already have that to a certain extent. I mean, um, a new Tory MP, Tom Hunt, tweeted how appalled he was at people who pulled a police officer off her horse. And when he transpired, nobody pulled that police officer off her horse. What did he do? Did he delete his tweet? No, he doubled down, of course. And that's the sort of, you know, that's the landscape we're in at the moment. But I do think it's different for the UK because in the States, police is almost an extended uh, uh, part of the army almost. There's something militaristic about it, about the way it uses guns, about the way it approaches policing, which is very, very different to what happens in the UK, which is largely policing by consent. We basically all agree that, you know, we have to go along with the rules. So when that breaks down, it breaks down in a very different way, I think. Also with us is Ros Taylor, editor over at LSE Brexit Blogs. Hello, Ros. How are you doing? Hello. Ros, uh, as if in a trip back to a gentler time, uh, you spoke with former Tory MP Matthew Paris earlier this week for our sister podcast, The Bunker Daily, and it was just lovely to hear a sensible Conservative voice for once. I mean, he, d- he didn't mince words about this about the new leader of his old party. Do you think there's any uh, any stirrings amongst the old Tories as Boris Johnson gets further on the back foot? Uh, uh, certainly no place for Liberal Tories in the new regime. And there's certainly no place for uh, Tories with any tolerance of Europe. And I think Boris Johnson has been signalling through lockdown where his priorities lie. If you look at what he's been doing, what he's been allowing to happen, it is basically giving complete precedence to opening businesses and getting the economy going and allowing sports that mainly elderly people do to take place. So it is clear there that he's appealing to that constituency. And of course, he will try to revive the whole Brexit issue as soon as he gets the chance as well in order to fire up his base. And the plan for all primary schools that was much touted, they're all supposedly going to return to class before summer. That's finally been called off this week. But the zoos are going to open again. So that's okay. Um, (laughs) Do you th- do you think this government? I mean, Boris Johnson has a lot of children somewhere. Do you think this government gets the importance of education, not just for you know 
preparing kids for, for later life, but also for the kind of stability of, of family life. Because it seems to be treated as you know, an issue of almost, well, you know, we, we've, we've got to shut up these bolshy teachers rather than we have a lot of children and families that are dealing with enormous stress at the moment. No, it, it doesn't at all. And I feel incredibly strongly about this, as anyone who follows me on Twitter will know. Perhaps it's because um, certain members of the cabinet were educated at boarding schools. And so childcare was and family, you know, were, were simply not so much of an issue. But it is it is heartbreaking, really. I have one, I have a daughter in year six who went back on Monday and a son in year two who's not going back. And I haven't been able to tell him yet that he's not going back because he'll be so devastated. Already when he saw his sister going back, you know, he was in tears and uh, he so wants to be with his class. He wants to be with his friends. And the government has said, no, for six months, you cannot see your friends and you cannot go back to school. And it makes me just incredibly sad. I, I foolishly thought that the right to an education, which is a enshrined right was something the government would put ahead of commercial of businesses reopening and I was very very wrong I mean when it comes to opening London Zoo I looked up today uh, if you buy tickets for a family of four to go to London Zoo it's 108 pounds that even supposing that parents have the time to take their kids to the zoo when they're trying desperately to get the work done and homeschool at the same time it's just laughable the idea that this is any kind of substitute for education and as the children's commissioner has pointed out we can have a situation where kids can go and hang out in primark in the summer they can even go to the thought park amusement park but can they have an education no it's it's atrocious I've got this image of Boris Johnson wandering around London Zoo on his like divorced dad Saturday with some kid and thinking that that is the way to do it. You know, this is it's his vision of uh, family life. You get your alternative Saturday in London Zoo. On this week's podcast, what goes around comes around and around and around and around. With the deadline for an extension fast approaching, Boris Johnson has decided that the oven ready deal that he put together was so unfair after all what's going to happen there and we'll take a look at alex's enormous investigation for byline times on whether the government did or did not follow the science on coronavirus all that after a couple of reminders from naomi patreon backers if you're listening to this on thursday the 11th of june it's time to explore the back of the drinks cupboard because our zoom live stream starts tonight at 8 p.m so pull out whatever's left after 10 weeks of confinement Absinthe, baby sham, creme de month, maybe even some avocat that's gone a bit gluey. And join today's panel, plus Ian, Dorian and Aisha for another Romaniacs versus the Punker pod clash. If you haven't registered for the live stream, there's a reminder in your inbox. Everyone else, if you missed it, well, <laughs> it was great. Uh, but <laughs> you can join the next one if you back us on Patreon. And of course, you can choose from our range of mugs, T-shirts and other benefits too. Search Patreon Romaniacs to get all that, plus the podcast early and without any ads. It's the only oven-ready deal you can trust. Thanks, Naomi. So speaking of oven-ready deals, the latest round of the Brexit talks have ended in stalemate and acrimonious messaging. Again, the EU has accused the UK of backtracking on previous commitments and Britain has accused the EU negotiators of losing their grip on fish. Slippery bugger Johnny Haddock. Meanwhile, Boris Johnson chose this golden moment to attack the unfair Brexit deal and promised to fix it. Wait till he finds out who agreed to the thing in the first place. They'll be for the high jump. Naomi, we need to renegotiate this unfair deal. It really does look like champion brass neck, doesn't it? Do you think Johnson is getting away with this? Branding his own deal as a bad deal. I don't think he is going to get away with it. Um, remember, this is all 
post the coming scandal and everything that happened with Barnard Castle and trust in the government and Johnson is falling um, and their mask has slipped. And I just don't think that people are going to buy the the crap they come out with now in the same way they did previously. And look, we've even had like Reese Mogg uh, compounding it by showing that, um, you know, restrictions don't apply to MPs and we haven't seen, uh, you know, wearing of masks and uh, social distancing enforced properly in the Commons. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I, don't, I don't think he's going to get away with it in the way he did. And, and the polls certainly seem to be inferring that he isn't. UK negotiators are in negotiations claim that what was agreed last year was just the parameters of the talks and not the mm. deal itself is that a kind of is that a reasonable excuse for no progress being made no uh no excuse at all because the withdrawal agreement um which is the legal framework rather than the the political declaration is pretty detailed in terms of what is expected with regards to progress uh, by this date and you know not least of all the the northern irish protocol where we know very little progress has been made in terms of what should be happening uh, regarding you know customs and uh, border checks and things like that and let's just remember we were promised an orderly brexit we were going to be able to level up the country and we had an oven ready deal. And writing in the Telegraph on the 5th of November 2019, ahead of that election, Prime Minister Johnson said, we have a great new deal that is ready to go. Now, of course, none of us believed him, but millions did. Um, and so, frankly, it's just time to get into the forensic scrutiny of the detail now. What does this deal mean for insert region, town, sector, job role, etc. Um, and, you know, the only reasonable excuse for no progress having made, made, been made by now is, of course, a, a, a whacking great big global pandemic that has distracted every single government in the world, especially across the EU 27. The, the FT, I mean, what, you know, you search in vain for a kind of a fully trustworthy voice on, on this, but the FT isn't a bad one. The FT said both sides showed fresh signs of willingness to compromise earlier this week. And apparently Barnier says they'll relax EU rules on state aid. And we have said we'll accept some tariffs on agricultural goods if we can diverge from environmental and labour standards. That doesn't sound like much of a deal, really. Do you think that is there any element of compromise going on or is it it chaff? Look, my hope is that we could see some kind of grand equivalence deal. So, uh, for instance, maybe the EU accepts that there won't necessarily be EU, uh, sorry, ECJ jurisdiction um, over us, but that we will have close alignment. So for instance, the EU could give us a certain degree of access so long as we do not act in an anti-competitive manner, and that if we do, they would of course revoke it. So I think both sides will be exploring some form of interim arrangements that allow a degree of continuation with the status quo. And there really won't be, I don't think anyone is expecting any real breakthroughs um, at next next week's proposed summit which is at the moment is being mooted for I think around the 19th of June uh, but at the October council meeting and that's where we think the big strides will be made and that is more the real deadline than this one at the end of June and also by this time I think it's worth remembering that the EU will have reached agreement among the 27 on their new budget which they haven't at the moment and of course they're having to put in all of the um, emergency fund work into that as well and so it's kind of hard for the EU side at the moment to negotiate fully with us um, because until that budget is agreed they don't quite know what 
wriggle room they've got um, within a, a UK trade deal to sign up to because that they, they, you know they don't quite know um, the the full scale of what the rest of the EU twenty seven are going to be asked to contribute to that budget. Roz, you've been pretty unimpressed by the Frost Barnier double act dynamic, and particularly Frost acting for us. What sort of a job has he done? Well, not a very good one. I think, to be honest, he is being set up as something of a fall guy because I don't think Johnson has any intention of letting Frost come up with a deal by himself. He would rather have a deal that has Johnson's own name mm-hmm. on it. And I think part of the impetus for October now, not even June, is basically to rule out any possibility of an extension, which they don't want to talk about at all. And it would obviously be much more difficult the later it gets, if not impossible. And it also means that Johnson can step in and, as it were, save the day and get a deal with his name on it. As far as we can tell about the relationship between Frost and Barnier, it is, you know, to Frost, but Frosty, it is chilly. If you read the statements that each puts out, they're really, there's, there's not a lot of love lost between them. Alex, Wolfgang Munchau, again in the FT, reading a lot of FT this week, he argues that <laughs> Remainers in the UK ought to consider their role in feeding expectations in Brussels that we're more desperate for a deal than the EU is. Is it actually partly our fault? Are we the baddies? Have we fed expectations wrongly? Oh, dear Wolfgang. Um, it's a good piece, OK? I would encourage everyone to read it. It makes a lot of excellent points. This isn't one of them. Um, the assertion is basically it was Remainers who somehow convinced a block six times the size of the UK that it was in a strong negotiating position, as if that is debatable. I mean, it's nonsense. The EU is in a strong position by virtue of both its size and the level of disruption Brexit will cause. It's not a matter for discussion. It's, it's not something you have to convince others of. It's just, it also has loads of great free trade agreements with other countries that the UK doesn't have. Well, exactly. It's just tiresome four years later to have to point out that losing a big trade relationship is not the same level of market trauma as losing the entire fucking framework under which you do all trade. So the misjudgment uh, Munchau mentions in his piece is not about the UK's position but the UK's disposition. He's saying that Remainers convinced the EU the UK would ultimately act like a sane country. But the (laughs) UK's disposition to the EU changes weakly, uh, depending on how badly either Cameron or May or Johnson are doing in the polls and how badly they need to pander to their base. And so that has ultimately been the issue, that the EU agrees a political declaration in late 2019 with Boris Johnson, that Boris Johnson hails as a a tremendous victory at the time, and Boris Johnson disavows as unfair six months later. So yes, it is like trying to grip fish, if the fish (laughs) is an eel and it's in a paddling pool full of lubricant. Because that's what it, that's what it's been. Barnier was so frustrated when he g- gave the press conference after the latest round of negotiation. You could see how flustered he was because basically he was saying, "It's taken us six, seven months now of negotiations 
to try and get you up to the level of stuff that you agreed last year. And it's available in English and it's very simple to read. Like he, he was, he, yeah, you're right. He was at the end it's of the It's just summer. extraordinary. What he's saying is the reason we haven't made any progress is because we've spent seven months trying to get you to stop from turning away from stuff we've already fucking agreed. Maybe we should stop thinking of them in terms of negotiations and just think Britain's trolling the EU. I, I think it is. I think that's what it well, is. Well, it's it's more like some kind of two-year-olds acting out tantrum, like, it's not fair. You know, how come he got a sweetie and I didn't? You know, that's it's sort of that level of... Um, you know, outrageous, juvenile, emotional reaction to, you know, they're not having an adult-to-adult conversation. They're having what feels much more like a parent-child relationship. And and still the UK is relying on the notion that ultimately the EU will act like adults. This is the worst Mm. part of this, is that we are relying on the idea that the EU will still try to do its best under the circumstances. But I have to tell you, the EU is dealing with coronavirus at the moment and the economic fallout from that. And to have this constant irritation, it is just as likely to turn around and say, right, we tried, let's now focus on preparing for no deal in July, which I think they might do. Relevant to future trading, uh, something that emerged between this podcast and the last one is that the government has effectively dropped its opposition to lower standards for imported food and particularly the infamous US chlorinated chicken. Instead, what's going to happen is that um, the imports will get higher, the, the chlorinated chicken, for instance, will get a higher tariff and Britain's farmers will be allowed to compete. So supposedly the market's going to sort this out. But how does that fit with the promise of cheaper food? If we're going to impose higher tariffs on this chlorinated and hormone-treated meat that we don't actually want in the first place. Oh, Christ, as a former market regulator, this just makes me cringe. The idea, <laughs> the idea that you say we're going to basically knock down non-tariff barriers, but don't worry, we're going to put up tariff bar- barriers to protect you. I mean, <laughs> they all add up to the same thing ultimately. So what you're going to end up getting is worse quality food for a higher price. It's just a lose-lose. And uh, I think what's really interesting about it is the uh, internal Conservative Party wars over this. So you've basically got Liz Truss and surprisingly, I think, Rishi Sunak uh, on the side of chlorinated chicken and uh, making sure that that we get that trade deal with the US and, and their nasty animal products can enter our market. And then you've got Boris Johnson actually saying no. And, um, you know, the reports were that this is really being driven by Carrie Simmons, uh, who is, um, (laughs) you know, an animal rights advocate and thinks that, you know, this is the thin end of the wedge towards uh, a degradation of um, the treatment of animals in the UK. So, uh, you know, in some senses, uh, and as somebody that will never be eating any of these products anyway, I'm sort of sitting back watching popcorn and, and, and rather enjoying the fallout between them all over this yeah but what about the rest of us now i mean we've got to rely on carrie simmons now to get a decent cheeseburger i mean come on so basically a trade deal with the u.s will come down to a fight between carrie simmons and dominic cummings neither of whom is elected <laughs> but i would like to be a fly on the wall for that one um <laughs> Ross, on the fish desk 
back in the negotiations, <laughs> Barnier was apparently blocked from presenting a compromise on fisheries last week because member states decided they, did, they, they didn't fancy it. And so we're seeing a hard line on fish, but willingness to compromise on tariffs and state aid. I mean, is, is this coherent or is, or is Barnier having to balance a load of spinning plates from his own end? Oh, yes, undoubtedly he is. I mean, and the fish issue is, of course, largely largely France, which um, has big fishing territories, and this is a real deal-breaker fish for for um, France. And to be honest, we don't want to be involved in any kind of fish war with France. That would be, that would end very unhappily. Um, is it, is the sort of tactic of grinding away working? I don't see much grinding going on. I don't think, I don't think Boris uh, Johnson is actually doing very much. I think he's um, up to his neck uh, in coronavirus and he's just letting Frost get on with killing time, in effect, until he can step in and, 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 and sort it out. It's just procrastination. So, no, I don't see any grinding at all. Before we move on, we just opened talks with Japan apparently, which is great because the EU didn't already have the best and most comprehensive deal with Japan at all <laughs> or anything. Um, how important is this? Is this going to be, is this going to be spun as our, uh, you know, latest magnificent escape from the, uh, you know, the chains? Trade with Japan is not by itself incredibly important. The reason the UK is so keen to do a deal is because if we did deal with Japan, we would be more likely to get accession to something called the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, which would mean that we might be able to do a deal uh, to, to join this partnership, this trade partnership that has 11 Pacific nations in it, which include, you know, Canada and Mexico and places like that. So that's why the government is keen to do it. In terms of what Britain wants from it. It wants preferential treatment for our financial services, and it wants also uh, preferential access for our textiles, so we can, you know, um, basically export British fa- uh, high-level British fashion to Japan. That is the aim. Japan, on the other hand, wants us to get rid of all car tariffs, which, of course, the EU um, already did. The EU deal already did. So we'll we'll see where that one goes. Now, let nobody say that Alex has been idle while stuck in Mykonos. During May, he put together an absolutely enormous 4,000-word piece for Byline Times, headlined The Lost March, How the UK Government's COVID-19 Strategy Fell Apart, and it came out last week. We urge you to read it. We've shared it, and we will reshare it on social media. Alex looks at the government mantra that we have taken the right steps at the right time based on the best scientific advice, and he finds that, no, they didn't. Um, Alex, this is clearly going to be the stuff of public inquiries in years to come, but what were the key missed milestones that you identified, the key turning points that led us to where we are now? Um, it's not so much missed milestones as mistiming the entire response. So uh, the UK had a plan. Okay, It was a shitty plan, I have to say, by the way, which is why no other country had it. But we had a plan, and the one thing everyone agreed on was the timing of executing it was critical. And we got the timing wrong, not by a bit, but by a lot. And then instead of ditching the plan, or jumping forward to the bit of the plan that corresponded to the right timing, we decided we were going to plough through the plan anyway, just in a compressed time. So we did seven weeks' worth of measures in 10 days, giving everyone the impression of panic, 
which was right, the government were in panic in that second half of March, which is not a great thing to do in a health emergency. So there was a breakdown of discipline on top of everything else. Um, It was just a disaster from start to finish. I mean, when you're stuck in the middle of a massive event like this, it's often hard to spot what really matters as things fly past you as, you know, major events. And as you say, an impression of of panic. While you were were re-examining all this stuff and going through it again, what struck you anew? Because we've we've been reading about this every day, all day, continually. How smug everyone was, in all honesty. How incredible, I mean, go and watch the... uh, Go and watch the briefing of the 3rd of March. You can find it on YouTube. The briefing of the, th- of, of the 3rd of March was basically the first briefing that Johnson participated in after the first COBRA meeting he attended, just dripping with smugness about how much better Britain is going to do everything compared to those pesky Chinese and Italians. It was coming out of every pore of all three people involved. And I think it costs thousands of lives in the end. Is this the instance of the absolutely infuriating squash the sombrero line? Um, No, I think that was either the 9th or the 12th. I think that was the 12th um, of March, the squash the sombrero line. But but, uh, on the 3rd, they were already talking, well, it was all they talked about was pushing the peak into the summer months. And then the graph for it, which was the whole base of the sombrero thing, appeared, I think, on the 12th. Um, And so that was the idea that we were going to intervene so surgically, we were actually going to manage to manipulate the curve of the pandemic and push it three months into the future. I mean, saying it now seems so mad, considering Mm. how many unknowns were involved. You know that they were going to get it. They're going to get the timing so right that they're going to catch this thing just right on the upswing, enough to squash it and push it forward. Not too early, not too late. They were going to hit it right dead center. Um, a crazy attitude at a time when a, a safety first um, a strategy would have been much better, like Greece adopted like Slovakia, adopted like Finland, like uh, Norway, like uh, in many ways, Austria adopted. I mean, there were countries that didn't have the time, um, you know, they were hit pretty early by this thing and didn't have the time to adopt a cautious strategy. They were landed right in the middle of it. Um, But there were countries that had time. And Britain was one of the countries that had time to, to choose its response. And the response it chose was to wait until just right the right time, which seems crazy in retrospect. And you also mentioned Boris Johnson's former director of communications, Ghetto Harry, who mm. describes how you know Johnson's tendency, I think the quote was to set the bar quite high to justify the state getting involved in people's everyday lives at all. I mean, are we looking at an instance here where kind of ideology has effectively killed people? I think we're looking at a combination of stuff. Um, I, I, I'm not in Boris Johnson's head, thank God. Mm. Um, and I don't know what precisely he thought his thought process might have been. But one senses that there was a drag on the policy, that the scientists would get together and go, oh, fuck, this thing is going a lot faster than we thought. 
And then they had to manage the prime minister into agreeing the next step and the next mm. step after that. So, the, you know, his, his tendency, I think, was to be incremental rather than saying, right, we have to lock everything down. Um, and whether that on its own cost lives, whether the mistiming cost lives, I mean, who knows? There was, uh, there was a great piece uh, on the Today programme on Wednesday morning um, that looked at uh, the DNA sequencing of the virus as it exists in the UK today. And they found that the idea that this thing started from a patient zero, in a sense, and spread outwards was actually completely misconceived. What they found is that there were dozens of little outbreaks all over the country, coming from mm. all over Europe and all over the world, actually, um, which makes it very relevant why we didn't close the borders back then, but we're closing them now. So they thought they were dealing with this one flame that would develop into a fire from one spot, when in fact what they were dealing with was was effectively dozens of people had gone around the country with a torch setting the curtains on fire. So you, you, had, you had a fire that was spreading from every direction. And that's why they got the timing of it so wrong. Alex, you, um, I mean, you're clearly going to have to give evidence at the trial because this <laughs> is just a, a formidable bit of investigative work. And, and, you know, thank you very, very, very much for doing it. Uh, and, uh, and it's, somewhat disappointing that um you know more more traditional investigative journalists haven't done this work too but what hope is there well they've all picked it up now that's what yeah Yeah. (laughs) Uh, um but what what hope is there for a public inquiry ahead of any second wave or third wave because you know it, it feels to me that as is so often the case with inquiries is that they happen long after the event and they're a bit of a whitewash and then you might end up having a, another inquiry because the first one didn't do its job and well you know all all well and good for sort of you know making us feel better but this is mm-hmm. so life and death we need it now but but it's, is there any chance of it it's an interesting question i don't think there is a chance of a full inquiry while we're in the middle of it i just don't think there's the political appetite for it and unfortunately the current government is firmly in charge of parliament. Um, so I don't think it can, it can be forced. However, having said that, I think what will happen is that at some point, one or more of the scientists involved in SAGE will break loose and start saying, uh, you know, if it comes to a second wave, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do this a second time. They're not listening to us again. And it might be someone quite senior. I occasionally get the sense that Chris Whitty is a lot less invested um, than the more bolshy um, Valens. Um, so we will see. But I think the way this thing is going to break down is, is through a, a, a prominent resignation. Alex, how much of an issue uh, impacted the shadow of Brexit have, if you like, in the sense that we're no longer part of the EU, we don't liaise with it as much as we did. And, you know, Johnson is trying to psychologically distance ourselves from it. Mm. And of course, there were early, 
you know, clear early signs from Italy of how bad things could get. But he continued to sort of create the impression that we could take a different path, which would be our own and it would be fine, maybe because we're an island or something sane mm. like that. Do you, do you think that Brexit had an impact on the response? I think I think it had an impact. I don't think it was that impact. I don't think it was a... I mean, obviously, it had practical um, implications. We we saw it, you know, with regard to joint procurement of PPE and all that sort of stuff. Obviously, the 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 gut instinct to say no, no, we're going to do this on our own stems from the same um, sort of spring that Brexit flows. But I think what it did have an impact on was how much the UK's eye was off the ball. And I think that had a huge effect. If you think about it, on the 26th of January, when the UK got its first uh, its first case of coronavirus in the UK, what were we arguing about? We were arguing about whether Big Ben should bong or not <laughs> for Brexit. No, but, you know... And and that that was occupying the entire bandwidth of both government, media, and the people watching on. And that I think is a is a is a really important thing because actually, had the twenty sixth been a much slower news day, we might have been getting a lot more reports about what's happening in China, and people might have been more alert to it. <laughs> Before we move on, let's re-empower the listeners with our segment To the Barricades. Every week, one of our regulars identifies a cause for Romaniacs listeners to put their backs into, and this week it's Roz's turn. Roz, what barricades will we be rushing to this week? One of the uh, saddest things about this pandemic, to me at least, has been the way elderly people have suffered, not just from coronavirus, but from the effects of a lockdown. And those, of course, have been in the community when many of them are shielding, but also in care homes. And I was really pleased to see this week that the um, scouts are actually encouraging their members to uh, get in touch with elderly people in care homes, through the care homes and see what they can do, because there are many reports of elderly people just losing the will to live literally, because they don't have visits, because they're isolated, particularly those with dementia, but not only those with dementia. And that is a terrible, terrible byproduct of this lockdown. And I think it will only become uh, more more apparent as time goes on. In terms of what we can do to get to the barricades, I haven't done this for a while. And I realised at the beginning of this pandemic period, I made a point of calling some of the elderly people I knew and just checking in with them and finding out what they were up to. And then life has just got so incredibly busy and frantic and I haven't always felt that I have much support to offer because sometimes I've been struggling mentally myself uh, and I need to do that again and I need to call them back and I need to say, how are you getting on? How is it? Because this is actually, they need that more now. So I'm urging you along with me to call an elderly person that you know, uh, whether a relative or not, and have a chat with them. (laughs) 
No deal would mean worse food shortages than the food supply chain faced with COVID-19, according to Andrew Opie of the British Retail Consortium. Apparently, Italy increased pasta production for Britain during the worst of COVID, he says. But under no deal, that flow into the country would stop. So we could actually be in a worse position than we were in the middle of the worst of the pandemic. Ros, do you think people are making the connection between no deal and, and uh, food insecurity? And, or do they think, you know... We've got through COVID. We, you know, we stripped the shelves of toilet paper and pasta. We don't need to worry now because we've done it. Uh, no, they're not. And the interesting thing, in many ways, about this is that the problems we had with supply at the beginning of this pandemic were due to almost exclusively to panic buying. People heard a rumour that there wasn't enough toilet paper to go around, so they immediately rushed out and had to buy toilet paper. And the same thing happened with flour, with sugar, with all the things, you know, that uh, they felt they ought to stock up on. And it's going to be different in the event of no deal because it's actually going to be goods that can't get to this country are being slowed down, are being stopped. And we're going to have to change what we eat and how we eat it in order to deal with that. Uh, in a way that we haven't at all, really. I mean, people said, complained about not having flour. Well, most of the time, a lot of people don't use flour anyway. Uh, The the shortages were not true shortages. They were the effect of panic buying. And... Yeah, they only wanted flour because they were bored and they fancied making a pizza. It wasn't an emergency, yeah, was it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You could always get pizza. I mean, you, you could always have it delivered. It wasn't an issue. Very different situation after No Deal. And we are going to have to get used. For example, with fish, let's return to fish because, you know, I always love talking about fish. When we get to the situation with No Deal where we can't export the fish we don't want anymore and the fish we want to import is too uh, expensive for us to buy, we're going to have to change the kinds of fish we eat and we're going to have to eat fish that currently we don't much like eating because culturally we we don't like things like herring and so on. Very few people eating roll mops anymore consistently, but perhaps cats. <laughs> but it, it, it's going to have to change and people have not got to grips with how these supply chains are going to change uh, going to change, and how their diet is going to change as a, as a result. So are you saying that to demonstrate our independence from Europe as an independent coastal nation, we're going to have to start eating the kind of food that they eat in Europe, like roll mop herrings? <laughs> <laughs> in another related story, uh, apparently we've used up our Brexit stockpile of drugs as well, which Big Pharma put together uh, last autumn in, in, in anticipation of when we thought we were going to have no deal last time. According to a memo to government from several industry bodies, including the Association of the British Pharmaceutical Industry, there will be less or zero products available in the market to allow for stockpiling on a broad range of products. What they mean, of course, is fewer or zero. Big Pharma needs to listen to big grammar now and again. Naomi, is anybody in government listening to this when you can't get the drugs that you need? Is is, is any of this going to get through? No, uh, I think part of the problem is that we've seen the cavalier attitude towards death that this government um, has. So it's not obvious to me that they'll be too bothered uh, if all of a sudden, you know, medical isotopes are treating cancer and uh, blood and heme products that, you know, have even been used to treat coronavirus suddenly get stuck at the border and their shelf life expires. Um, but they might change their minds if it's about gout remedies, I guess, or something. Finally, it's been quite nice to see Yorkshire Tea and PG Tips telling far-right bloggers not to buy their tea this week, and tea pigs as well. Uh, what do we prefer, panel? Solidarity or Antifa? Solidarity. Oh, solidarity. Yeah. Solidarity. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. If you, drink, if you drink Antifa, Donald Trump will prescribe you, won't they? <laughs>
And with that, it's time for a nice hot cup of racist tears and the Brexit bridge at the end of the show where we build our way back to Europe. And all of a sudden, there's a lot more scrap metal lying around in order to do it with. Alexandreo, it's your turn to do the Brexit bridge. What's your, what, you, what are you going to put into it? I, I think um, we need some certainty about the status of EU people in the UK and UK people in the EU27. Um, sorry to bang that drum again. But uh, there's an enormous amount of grey area that came into very sharp relief for me last month. And I know from a couple of uh, British friends who live in Greece, also they had exactly the same problem, in that when all the flights stopped and it, it came down to maybe looking at possible repatriation flights, it turned out that a passport was all that mattered. So even though I live in the UK, I couldn't get a repatriation flight through the Home Office, back to the UK. And British friends of mine who live in Greece, one of whom doesn't even have anywhere to stay in the UK, was literally there just for two days to pick up some papers, were told they couldn't come back on a Greek repatriation flight because they were on a British passport. And that just brought into really, really present tense the hypotheticals about what happens, you know, with this huge legal grey area for people like yeah. me. Blimey. So that's going into the Brexit bridge. A bit of clarity. Yeah. Excellent. And that is our show for the week. Thank you to panel Alex, Nomi and Roz. Now it's time for our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. And a thanks to all our latest Patreon backers. to Jenny Wilson, Matthew Trigg, Amanda Holloway, Pauline Walsh, Kevin and Dean Lee. Με πολύ αγάπη από μένα στην Ελλάδα, Rob Davis, Rafe, Gwendolyn Burks, Rob Windmill, you spin me right round, Michael Haywood and Stephen McVay. Oh hello, uh, this is Arlene Foster here just popping on to say a wee thank you now to Alison Brown, Jonathan Henry, Rob Thorley, Luke, use the force Luke, Adam Corf and Richard Hull. <laughs> and finally, a massive shout from me too. Emma Jones, James Stenowish, Luisa Ferreira, Alice, Adam Narkonski and Bob Wilson, Anchorman. Romaniacs was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Ross Taylor, Naomi Smith and Alexandreou. Audio production and scripting was by me, Alex Reese. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold, and Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.